Welcome to the COVID What Comes Next podcast with Dr. Ashish Jha, Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health and a globally respected pandemic scientist and physician. Every week here, Dr. Jha will analyze events of the previous several days and offer his assessment and guidance for what lies ahead. I'm your host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal and the USA Today Network. Good morning, Ashish. How are you today? I'm well, Wayne. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. This is the 24th taping of this podcast. which is, Wow. I know. That was my reaction when I looked up the numbers. It's like, wow. And, uh, you know, we're into spring finally. And, you know, I was out on my walk. I heard birds, saw flowers. It's all a good thing. But that part is all a good thing. There are some troubling uh, indications here recently. One of them is there seems to be a larger number of young people, even into, you know, children and adolescents who are becoming sick with COVID. I've been seeing that in, in various stories. And maybe you can explain that or tell us what's going on there. That yeah. seemed rather surprising to me. Yeah. Yeah. So what's going on, Wayne, is, um, you know, these more infectious variants, especially B117, is now widespread, vast majority of infections in America. And it is in many states causing a surge in infections. In other states, it may not be surging, but it's still at a high level. And this is in the context of the fact that a vast majority of people over 65 have gotten at least one shot and they're largely protected. And so what you're seeing is a shift in the demographics of this infection uh, under this more contagious variant where it's young people who are getting primarily infected and in relatively large numbers and a proportion of them are getting sick. Now, you know, are the, a higher proportion getting sick? Maybe there is some evidence that B117 is more, um, uh, is more deadly as well and can get people sicker than the original ver uh, version of this virus. But I think largely we're really seeing the effect on young people because of the dramatic effect of older people being protected and not being part of the pool. Is the fact that many schools are reopening in person or at least partly in person uh, and, you know, high school and, and elementary school teams are playing again, does that factor in here at all, do you think? It's possible. And we are seeing outbreaks uh, in some schools, especially around sporting events. And my take is that what is happening is so schools have put a lot of time and effort into mitigating outbreaks within the school itself. Again, some schools better than others. And if you don't do a good job of mask wearing and ventilation, obviously you can see outbreaks within schools themselves. But what is happening is that when you get onto the sports field, a lot of people are letting their guards down. And being outside, let's say playing uh, soccer, playing football, playing uh, field hockey, those aren't going to get you into trouble being outside. But what happens is then kids will go into a locker room afterwards or before those basic things that we got to make sure people are not doing, that's not happening in many places. Uh, and then you often see kids coming together, or, you know, uh, athletes getting together on Friday and Saturday nights together. There's a lot of spread happening in those other contexts. Um, and what I'm saying to schools is if you want to have sports, you absolutely can keep it outside don't have locker rooms, have people dress up before and after, go home on their own and really try to avoid the large social gatherings because that is starting to spread a lot of disease. What about indoor sports? Some sports you can't play outside, hockey, for example, unless you're, you're in Saskatchewan in winter. 
uh, basketball. You can play it outside, but it's mostly played inside. Uh, you know, and there are other sports, volleyball. Uh, yeah. What's your What's your guidance there? Yeah, it's trickier. Um, we have seen hockey and basketball and volleyball be able to be played safely indoors, but it's complicated. And what you the single biggest thing you need to do is make sure everybody's wearing a mask. Like without that, I think it's just very dangerous uh, to do this. Obviously, college basketball and stuff, they do it without masks because they're testing everybody and they've got a very rigorous protocol that, I mean, schools can also implement that. I do think schools should be doing more testing as another way to add protection. But my general recommendation to schools has been if you're going to do indoor sports, everybody masks up. Uh, Again, avoid that locker room situation. So even for hockey, have kids show up uh, dressed up, ready to go, take them home. avoid uh, and then being on the ice probably can do it pretty safely and spectators have to take precautions too uh, yes. as well you know sitting in the stands absolutely i've been reading and hearing a lot about a possible fourth wave coming um i've been reading it pretty much everywhere what's your take on that do you foresee it coming and, and what are the factors behind it if you do see it yeah, I think it's coming. I think we, we're starting already. We've seen a surge in cases. We've certainly seen some states like Michigan really struggling, uh, doing, doing uh, badly, and, and uh, other states as well with uptakes. New Jersey, uh, he, even here in Rhode Island, we saw a pretty big uptick for a while, but it has plateaued. The question that is in front of us is, is this going to wipe us out? Is this going to be a huge wave like what we saw over the holidays? Or is this going to be a, a bump in cases, but eventually we'll be able to keep it under control? And I am more in that latter camp. Like, I, again, I don't want to understate what's happening in Michigan, where they have seen a huge increase in cases. And, uh, and I worry about some other states. And I, you know, even Massachusetts is still rising. But I think we're doing so incredibly well on vaccinations that I think ultimately we will be able to blunt the effects of this of this wave. And the biggest issue in my mind is that we're not going to see catastrophic numbers of hospitalizations and deaths because we've done such a good job of protecting older people and higher risk people. You know, I wish this wave had come about four weeks from now, because in the next three to four weeks, most high risk people should be vaccinated. Um, So we still have a window of time where you're going to see a lot of people unnecessarily get infected and sick. And that's why I've been saying through the month of April, people really have to be very, very careful. But I'm not expecting anything that looks like what we saw over the holidays. In that way, the worst of the pandemic really is behind us. So that leads naturally to a subject that we talk about pretty much every week, which is vaccines. So we certainly have been talking about it for the last many weeks. Looking into the future, and again, summer, fall, and even into next year, will booster shots be required, do you think? Yeah, I guess I I think the answer is probably, but we don't know. Um, But there are two potential reasons people may need boosters, and both of them may actually come together in a way that could lead to people needing to get a booster sometime in the next 12 months. So let let me lay out both issues. One reason you might need a booster is you get waning immunity. Your vaccine just is not as effective as it was in the, in the first you know, nine or 12 months. And maybe after a year, you start seeing some waning of immunity, some in breakthrough infections. The second reason you may need a booster is because of variants. And the variants uh, may be such that our vaccines don't work quite as well. And it may be some combination of the two. So I would not be surprised if in the first year or two of, you know, the next year or two, I should say, um, we see annual boosters. 
I do think over time, we probably won't need annual boosters. I don't think we're going to need one much earlier than a year from now. Um, but I would not be surprised if we saw one, again, as I said, sometime in the next year or so. So can, can we safely assume that scientists and, and the manufacturers are working on or at least thinking about uh, such boosters? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're thinking about it in a couple of different ways. One is really to think about what goes into the booster. Uh, how do we make changes to the vaccine so that they're going to be even more effective against the variants? Uh, that work is being done now by at least by Pfizer and Moderna, and I suspect by J&J and others. Um, that's happening. And then the second is thinking about manufacturing capacity. Right now, Moderna and Pfizer and J&J are trying to make vaccines for the world. I mean, obviously, still making vaccines for us, but we're going to be in a pretty good space in the U.S. in the next month. Uh, really thinking about how you deliver to the whole world. Uh, adding boosters in for America, Europe, et cetera, just complicates this further. So that thinking is going on. Uh, but I suspect that we probably won't be making a ton of boosters until probably the fall or winter. So I've been reading a lot and actually seeing on TV just this morning, there was a, a person um, in Michigan who, whose mother was in the hospital uh, with COVID. And he was saying, I don't want to, I'm not going to get a vaccine. And he was asked, how, when and how would you? Well, when I know it's safe. It brings me to the larger question. There are still a lot of people who do not want to get the vaccine. Some are white evangelicals who think it's against their religious principles. Then there are people who just are skeptical of science, you know, in general, and we could go all the way back to the Scopes monkey trial for, the, for that conversation. But what do we do about that? I mean, th this seems to be an issue that uh, is, is, is troubling, not only for people who, those people who might get sick, but for the rest of us as we try to reach herd immunity. Yeah. Yeah, I, look, on the religious front, I mean, obviously, I, I am no expert, but I look to religious leaders like the Pope for the uh, Catholics around the world. And the Pope has been very, very clear that it is a moral, uh, it's morally acceptable, in fact, a, a, an obligation for people to get vaccinated. Um, you know, when I think about evangelicals in America, some of the leading evangelical leaders have gotten vaccinated and publicly and have called for uh, their parishioners to get vaccinated. Uh, uh, and their worshipers to get uh, vaccinated. So uh, that is good. I want to see more of that. I think they're going to have much more uh, purchase in terms of speaking to their community than public health people will. On the issue of kind of broader safety, comes up all the time. People say, well, I want to wait a year or two. And, you know, my response on this, and I don't know if we've, we've discussed this before, Wayne, but my response on this is I understand that people worry about the safety of these vaccines. Um, they have been tested now in hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and with the force, they've been given to hundreds of millions of people. But even in that, in that testing, we tested these much more thoroughly than others, uh, other vaccines and many therapies. And the key point here is almost all side effects that are clinically important tend to show up in the first 15 to 30 days, certainly by 60 days. One of the reasons why the FDA waited for at least two months of follow-up data before they authorized these vaccines is they wanted to have that adequate follow-up. I can't think of a single instance of a vaccine where side effects show up two years later. It, your body just doesn't work that way. The immune system doesn't work that way. Uh, so, you know, but I can't tell you that the side effects of getting COVID are really quite substantial. So that's why all of my family has been getting vaccinated as soon as they can. And that's what I continue to encourage people to do for themselves and for their families. And of course, the most severe side effect of getting COVID is you die. 
which seems to me to be a very compelling argument if if none of the other arguments yeah. work. So we had two audience questions, uh, and I'm going to read the first one. Dear Dr. Jacques, I'm going to read this verbatim. First, thank you for being a calm voice during the pandemic storm, exclamation point. My daughter is refusing to get the vaccine as she insists her doctor has indicated that it might cause sterility. Is there any data to support that? Thank you, Grandma. Yeah, there is no data to support that. In fact, I just I think um, uh, biologically, and again, the immunologists who've been really working on this, I think, are showing more and more that there's really no reason to be concerned about fertility with these vaccines. Um, unfortunately, some of the anti-vax crowd started spreading this misinformation early, and it has caused fear among a lot of, especially younger women. Um, I will tell you that uh, getting COVID, uh, we don't know the long-term effects of COVID uh, on fertility. I, again, I don't have any data to suggest it's, it's, neg it's, uh, it's negative. But, you know, in terms of thinking about health and well-being, uh, all the data suggests that vaccines are going to be way, way safer than, um, than getting COVID or, or otherwise. I would add on a personal note, one of those anti-vaxxers happens to be a college classmate of mine by the name of Bobby Kennedy Jr. And mm. he's done a lot of harm to this cause. So the final question is from a Becky, Becky Randolph, retired industrial hygienist. And she says, I love your podcast. My question is about contact tracing. For the past year, I've been expecting to hear about the analytical results from contact tracing. Why are we not hearing anything about the results from those efforts? Is the information confidential? Are COVID positive people not cooperating? Is the data collection design inadequate? A lot of questions there, but basically she wants to know what's the status of contact tracing. Yeah, some states are still using it. I think Massachusetts did a really good job with it. Other states did a lot with it as well. Uh, the data is largely not confidential. They're usually available in public reports. You know, the biggest problem is it never ended up becoming a major tool, uh, partly because our outbreaks were so large. And uh, so it was hard to use that as a, a tool to keep the, the pandemic under control. But it actually did generate quite a bit of good data on where people were getting infected, where, where um, spread was happening. And that stuff is available. And again, it's from that that we can see that a lot of spread was happening, for instance, in restaurants and bars and a lot of it at homes where people were entertaining friends and family who were not part of their pods. But um, that contact tracing stuff, I think, never really panned out as thoroughly as, as uh, many of us hoped. And in many states, there was just very little of it. So uh, more broadly, I think we were going to have to go back and rethink our strategy on, on contact tracing. And, and, and the issues around privacy people not answering questions, people not answering uh, phone calls. Those were real. And that and that really did hamper it in many, many places. Thank you. And to our audience, as always, if you have a question, send it to me at gwmiller at providencejournal.com and write question for Dr. Ja in the subject field. Ashish, thank you again, as always. We'll see you in a week and, and have a good one. Wayne, it was a pleasure as always. Take good care and I'll see you next week or I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.